He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Previously on Undercurrent. I have been increasingly worried about the kind of fragility of our democracy, especially when you look at what's gone on in the United Kingdom, the United States and other countries uh, where um, this kind of social media fueled frenzy um, has actually had a destabilizing effect on democracy. And these things often show up in New Zealand maybe a couple of years behind other parts of the world, and we would be about right on time for that. I am very worried about the general election. Disinformation's designs are aimed at the heart of democracy. They eviscerate it. That is the sole purpose of disinformation. This is not a joke. This is not going to go away. We have seen in particular conspiracy theories from Winston Peters' side increasing in our data. And I think this is a sign of being desperate. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is Undercurrent, an RNZ documentary series on disinformation. Back when it first dropped, we promised you a bonus episode. And here it is. This is episode eight, Ballot Box. Even on a close listen, it's quite hard to tell who's chanting for what. We are the people! This is the soundtrack of the 2023 election campaign. It's the Otara flea market on a Saturday in August. On one side, a group of people's chanting and waving placards in support of their political party of choice, in this case Labour. And right over the top of them, another group, protesting. Only, they're not exactly protesters. They're a fringe political party trying to get some attention from the mainstream media there to cover Labour leader Chris Hipkins. Soon after this happened to Hipkins, there was a similar disruption to a media conference held by National's Christopher Luxon. Is the lack of certainty from National holding up? Well, I'll just say to you, I think what you're seeing is a very unstable coalition of chaos emerging on the other side. Mr. Luxon, uh, you've actually you have, got a, um, we haven't seen you in Botany, I'm part of Otara. Uh, um, sorry, and mate. We haven't seen you in Otara, Mr. Luxon. Hey, buddy, can we just, why don't we just be respectful of everyone uh, I am else? I'm being respectful, Mr. So Luxon. Why not come we haven't and talk seen you, you down afterwards. in Botany at all. And, yeah. um, I think you're a candidate, we would like you I think to, you're a candidate um, for vision, right? We're part of Freedoms New Zealand. Yeah. And so, while speaking to reporters, he was ambushed by the same person who led the Otara protest Chris Hipkins faced. Mate, so very comfortable We've never come and seen talk you to down there when the shootings have yeah. come past. We've hey, never seen you down there. Hey, why, don't you be a bit, why don't you be a bit respectful, buddy? Because, I am being respectful. No, we're having a conference here and you're wanting you to... You don't listen to us, Mr Luxon. No, we're very comfortable to come and talk to you. I'm happy, I just said Where to you... Where were you when the gun shootings were happening, Mr Luxon? I said I'd come and talk to you, what mate. About Black, Black, what about Blackrock? Carl Mokoraka heckled the National Party leader before the media conference was moved indoors. Carl's a candidate for Brian Tamaki's party, Freedoms New Zealand. Now, when I saw this, I had a couple of thoughts. One... How's all this going to play out online? Well, it's spawned memes. Certainly it's travelled on social media, with Brian Tamaki also teasing on Facebook that this kind of tactic might be used again. We've been doing 
so sorry. You know so you're saying I, you're the better of the two Chris's, Mr. Luxton, but where are you? You see, you're the better of the or the Mr. or the real Mr. Chris Luxton. Oh, you're a funny guy, up. mate. You're a real funny guy. You're no, no, no slim you shady, you're buddy. A Christian, <laughs> but then you're not changing anything with abortion. Yeah, mate. That heckling went on for over two minutes. That's a long time. So, too, I'm thinking, where's the security? It wasn't that they were out of shot of the cameras. They weren't there as the leader of the opposition doesn't get security detail until the campaign starts. It seems I wasn't the only one raising the question. You might remember Harlow the Lovebird and Donna Carson, his owner, from earlier episodes of Undercurrent. He acts like a right brat when he's getting new feathers. I think he's nesting, even though he's a boy. Donna's a security expert and researches extremism. Because I'm a security advisor, my practitioner hat goes... What is going on? Why was that not even monitored? Why was somebody not even on the other side of that fence? You know, for me, a situational, operational type thing. So therein lies the rub, <laughs> is how do you have that engagement um, but not securitise it too much? And that's a really difficult space. And it's a difficult space for all Western nations. Western countries tend to be better at dealing with international security issues than they are with domestic sometimes because of that need to be a democratic society, which comes with that engagement piece. So how you balance that is a difficult one. It is difficult, isn't it? Because um, obviously it's good for politicians to be able to meet the public. Um, yeah. And in terms of campaigning, that's very much been the way that campaigns have run up until mm. now. There's lots of walkabouts and, you know, pressing the flesh and that kind of thing. Um but do we in the current security environment need to be treating things a bit differently? Again, that's a hard one, isn't it? It's a, it's a difficult one when you have also, I guess, candidates that um, do seem to have a different worldview um, from the mainstream society. And so I guess when you're engaging with another potential politician or you know somebody in that race, then there's also those dynamics as well. There are candidates this time round from various different parties as well that have links to disinformation or or people who seem to be part of those networks. And so I suppose that's something as well that politicians and indeed politician security detail haven't necessarily <laughs> dealt with before. So it kind of it, it yeah. just adds another layer of complexity, doesn't it? Yeah. And you've got, you know, members of the community that follow those politicians and believe in those things as well. And some for, you know, genuine perhaps grievances and it's just kind of gone from there um, or they feel that you know traditional politics has left them behind and so yeah there's a whole lot of dynamics that go into that conversation and yes myths and disinformation definitely is a big part of that. Culturally having to think about security in this way is a step change for New Zealand and it's not the only way our political landscape is beginning to morph. If you watch the footage, you can almost see the internal dialogue whirring through the heads of Christopher Luxon and Chris Hipkins. They're desperate for these people to go away. It's uncomfortable, awkward, embarrassing. But they're damned if they'll be associated in any way with shutting them up. 
The Labour leader grinned his broadest grin. Nationals urged Carl Mokoraka to be respectful. This again is the stuff of a political campaign in 2023. Mainstream political leaders charting a course that allows them to firmly eschew conspiracy theorists without wishing to seem authoritarian or overly defensive. I think we just have to feel our way through that. I mean, look, you all saw the video footage of me at the markets. Um, I decided to persist with that visit for a period of time. It then became clear that that was just counterproductive. No one was actually really getting the opportunity to interact with me because um, the, because Brian Tamaki and his team were so in, intent on disrupting that. So there wasn't a lot of point in continuing with that. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to continue to try. Um, but obviously we'll adapt as we go along. I think if you look around the world, we're seeing um, more um, heightened um, activity at the fringes of the political debate. Um, and I don't think New Zealand will be immune from that. Um, having said that, I'm still determined to get out there and campaign and to be accessible to the public, because I think that's what election campaigns should be about. So what is it about 2023? Charlie Mitchell, a senior reporter at Stuff, has been charting the rise of conspiracy theorists and says last time round in 2020, most of this was based around Billy Takahika. Obviously, he did not do particularly well um, in the election. Yeah, him and his sort of doomed coalition with Jamie Lee Ross. Um, nowadays, it, it's just completely different in the sense that it's not this like thing that's confined to this one fringe group. It, it's sort of like spread out quite a lot, and these like little elements of it, and all these different little parties and. And it's become quite diffuse, um, which is what I've noticed this election compared to the last election. It is certainly a very different lead up than it was last time. Conspiracy theorists standing for elected office is commonplace in the United States and several other Western democracies. Here, anti-vax candidates were on the ballot in local body elections last year, but didn't get very far. And since the general election campaign has got underway in earnest, they've started showing up as candidates for the Act and New Zealand First parties. It's a phenomenon known as entryism, where a political ideology is inserted into an existing party structure. Under MMP, it's pretty hard to get a new party up and over the 5% threshold. But joining an existing one and steering it in a different direction can reap those benefits. As we noted in episode five of Undercurrent, ACT and New Zealand First were the two mainstream parties identified as the worst offenders for fanning falsehoods at the last election. We have seen in particular conspiracy theories um, from Winston Peters' side increasing in our data. This is Dr Mona Krull, the author of that study on misinformation at the 2020 election. She spoke with me back in April when New Zealand First was languishing at about 2 or 3% in most polls and looked a long shot for Parliament. But Winston Peters' party was already making overtures to conspiracy communities. Within a few weeks, New Zealand First numbers were on the up, reaching 4, then 5% in the polls. As of the beginning of September, it's at 4.5% on RNZ's rolling poll of polls it could quite conceivably form parts of the next government. Charlie Mitchell identified three New Zealand First candidates who've shared false or extreme views on the pandemic and other topics. Former ACT supporter and former Democracy New Zealand candidate Kirsten Murphitt was the most extreme. 
sharing posts on Telegram of sinister and sprawling global plots and multiple conspiracies about the COVID vaccine. Hi, you've reached this mobile telephone of Kirsten Murphy from KM Law. I rang Kirsten Murphy several times, but she didn't pick up. At the tone, record your message. So I asked my RNZ colleague, Kirsty Johnston, to see what she could find out about the lawyer in Tauranga. So Kirsten's secretary told me that she was doing a candidacy event at a cafe called The General, which is out in the lakes, which is about 20 minutes from town. So I have just driven out here in the hope that she'll still be here. So let's all cross our fingers that she's still here. Hi, are you Kirsten? Oh, yes, I am. Oh, hey, I'm Kirsty Johnston. I'm a journalist with Radio New Zealand. Oh, hello. Yeah, I went to your office to try to catch you, but your secretary said you were doing a candidate meeting. We've been trying to catch you for an interview. Would now be a good time? No, it's actually not because I've got to get back to the office. Okay, when would be you... a good time to arrange? Can you to give come me a call at the office? Yeah, they've, yeah. Um, my colleague Susie has been trying to ring you with no success. Is there like a better number to Can you give you me your card or something? I don't have yeah. a card with me. Okay. Um, yeah, but we were just wondering, we really wanted to talk to you about your candidacy for New Zealand First, because I know you've only just joined, and we were wondering yeah. how you got involved with the party. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me that now? <laughs> Actually, I've just got to get back to work, and yeah. Okay. I mean, you guys have seen the hit pieces you've done on me. So. What hit pieces? Radio New Zealand have done hit pieces on you. Oh, stuff has, yeah. So I prefer Oh, so to, we're yeah. Radio New Zealand, which yeah. is different. Yeah. You don't want to talk to us? or? Oh, I'm happy to talk to you, but if you can make, just, I've got to get back to work. I've just okay. finished a meeting and I've got to get back to work. So Okay, I've I just want to confirm one thing. So you are running, like I know that New Zealand first, first List hasn't been announced yet, but is it is it pretty definite from your point of view that you are going to be a candidate yep. when it comes out? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll get Susie to message you on this number. Okay, cool. Great, okay. thank you. See ya, bye. Kirsten gave Kirsty her card. The problem with it, though, there was no number on it. Despite repeated texts to the number I already had for Kirsten asking for an interview, she replied but didn't agree to one. When New Zealand First released its candidate list, Kirsten Murphick was placed just outside the top 10 at number 11, a very respectable ranking, but unlikely to be high enough to see her into Parliament. It's a rather unusual turn of events. Candidates who are campaigning to get votes for their party doing everything to avoid speaking with the news media. It's happening with the ACT Party too. TVNZ initially revealed three ACT candidates, two of whom had since quit, with records of posting misinformation or references to Nazism and concentration camps as a parallel to vaccine mandates. They quickly went to ground. The one who stayed on, Darren Gilchrist, apologised and renounced a comment that he'd made on Telegram suggesting a link between vaccination and drowning 18 months ago. Weeks later, he too was off the party list. When the views of these candidates were outed, Axe Party leader David Seymour spoke about a need for balance. I actually think we've got a real problem with these, you know, almost purity tests about people's thinking. Sometimes it's good to have people with a range of views, uh, but there's some views that, that I don't agree with and some that I actually find unacceptable. Within New Zealand First, there are similar sentiments to be found about opening the door to anti-vax communities on a freedom of speech basis. 
The leader of Winston Peters was firmly pro-vaccination in the earlier stages of the pandemic in 2020. But in June, he made comments at an event in Dunedin that prompted excitement in misinformation networks, vaguely suggesting there were side effects from COVID vaccinations that hadn't been disclosed. Stephen Judd is part of Fact Aotearoa, a group that works to counter misinformation. He has previously worked for the Labour Party. He believes the entryism that's happened in New Zealand First is mutually beneficial to the party and the conspiracists who are getting involved. Why would you do that? It's a mistake to think that because these people have really out their views that they're dummies. So plenty of them are quite self-aware enough to realise that if their ideas are plainly stated, they're really unpopular with most New Zealanders. And they can see that in the track record of, of parties that have run in the past. So they need a vehicle that's got broader appeal that they can be part of. And then if they've been helpful or if they've managed to get selected as a candidate, whatever, then they'll achieve success that way. And I think conversely, it's probably tempting for a party that's on a knife edge where we get 5% to say, well, all those people together might only be 1% or 2% of the voter base, but 1% or 2% is a lot for us. You know, if you're at 5%, then 1% of the vote is 20% increase for you. The question's there whether people have the moral fibre to resist that. Charlie Mitchell reckons there's a natural fit. They've found each other. I think one of the reasons that New Zealand First has been such a good vessel for this is that there is an alignment to some extent with the the issues that conspiracy theorists are interested in and what New Zealand First has traditionally advocated. Um, And that's particularly around globalist institutions like the World Health Organization, World Economic Forum. These are very much the, the boogeymen to conspiracy theorists, but they're also to a nationalist party. They're also, you know, no fans of those institutions. So there is an alignment there. Um, New Zealand First is also socially conservative. Um, a, a lot of the sort of energizing influences in conspiracy theory movements now is opposition to, to trans rights and things like that. So there's an alignment there as well. So it's not completely like trying to jam two things together that don't fit. There is enough uh, mutual um, agreement on these issues that I could sort of see somebody who's been around New Zealand First for a long time just saying, like, I I maybe don't agree with some of the more extreme stuff, maybe some of the vaccine stuff I don't agree with, but there's enough overlap here that we are sort of pushing in the same direction and that it's not enough of an ideological disagreement that, that we need to be in different parties, I guess. Jenny Marcroft was a New Zealand First MP from 2017 to 2020, She quit the party after it was turfed out of Parliament at the 2020 election, but rejoined last year. I gave her a call. I'm not going to talk about other people. That's literally, I won't do that. All right. Um, But I will talk about Shane and his TikTok. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay. I'm back and making Northland great again. Shane Jones believed in... It's a master stroke of genius. You know, he, he is um, unashamedly, uh, you know, he, he, he hasn't got a great singing voice. 
And I think we can all resonate with that. Not all of us can sing in tune. You know, all my nieces and nephews, they all were saying how cool it is and how, how great Matu Ashane is for doing TikTok because they're all watching it. Jenny Marcroft won't use the term, but she does seem to accept there are conspiracy candidates within New Zealand First's ranks. Her attitude is, just let them be heard. Within New Zealand First now, obviously this is a party that you were away from for a couple of years. Now you're back. It does seem that um, some people who are supportive of New Zealand First appear to be coming from the disinformation community, if that's the right way to describe it. Um, no, I wouldn't describe them that way. What I would, what I would say is that, you know, we have free speech in New Zealand, and we must uphold that. And just because we don't agree with what someone says or thinks, why do we label them? Why do we disregard them? Why do we shut them down? Why do we call them nutters? You know, we have become so quick to be reactionary rather than take the take the attitude of, okay, you've got a different opinion than mine, whether it's a political opinion or how we raise our kids or whatever it might be, and allow ourselves to have differences without having to hate on each other. But I guess if you've got people in the party who are conspiracy theorists, you're happy sharing a platform with them? Look, we've all got people uh, that we know that don't think or agree with what we think and agree. You know, I could look to my own family and point the finger. Am I going to disown my own family members? No, not at all. You know, we don't have to agree with everyone. So far, only candidates for New Zealand First and ACT have had sustained scrutiny for anti-vax, misinformation or extreme political rhetoric. But few, if any of them, were in a position to make it to Parliament. They've been influencing their parties, but they were unlikely to have any direct sway on the halls of power. There is, however, one National Party candidate who is likely to become an MP and has a record of public comments and positions that are at the more extreme end of the political spectrum for New Zealand. Ryan Hamilton is National's candidate for Hamilton East. He doesn't appear to be an active conspiracy theorist, but he has taken positions sharply at odds with the party he now represents, first on the fluoridation of water and second on vaccine mandates. Ryan Hamilton has consistently and quite openly opposed the fluoridation of water for more than two decades. He's voiced support for Fluoride-Free Hamilton and New Zealand, a group on Facebook which has a lot of misinformation about fluoride on it. Way back in 2013, he posted a comment on Facebook which said, Get rid of fluoride. The poverty issue is redundant. Most lower socioeconomics fill their tap water with raro. So pull the other one. National is well aware of the problem of misinformation about fluoride. In November 2021, its MPs voted strongly in favour of a bill that gives the Director-General of Health the power to enforce fluoridation of water in communities. National's local government spokesperson at the time was Christopher Luxon. Here's what he said in a speech in Parliament about the bill. I do want to acknowledge um, what Dr Kerikeri said about uh, misinformation and uh, the rampant misinformation that has been taking place around this debate. 
He was referring here to Elizabeth Kerikeri, a Green MP at the time, who said work must continue to address misinformation about fluoridation. The National Party is backing the science of fluoridation, no doubt about it. We have 60 years of history. We have uh, a Royal New Zealand Society uh, report on it. We have the, the chief, uh, Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor's advice on it. And I want the public to know uh, it's incredibly safe, uh, completely safe and reasonable that we are doing this. Three weeks after he made this speech, Christopher Luxon was elected leader of the National Party. Other senior figures in National also spoke in support of the bill. Chris Bishop, now number three on the party's list, said... National wants to see more water supplies fluoridated. Shane Retty, at the time the deputy leader, health spokesperson and now number four on the list, said... I believe in the science. I think it will benefit uh, benefit people. And um, I think we can improve our oral health statistics by taking measures of this type. To be clear, we've not seen or heard instances of Ryan Hamilton actively peddling misinformation about fluoride. But he has supported a group that does. He's benefited from their support and he very clearly is at odds with National on the matter. A similar pattern applies to his position on Covid vaccine mandates. Ryan Hamilton's made no secret of his opposition to mandates. In November 2021, he was the sole Hamilton City Councillor to vote against vaccination being a requirement for entry to some council facilities. In that debate, he was measured and polite in explaining his opposition. There's no evidence he used misinformation to support his argument. But on social media, he's been less restrained. He's described protecting the... Welfare of the vulnerable. ...from COVID as a... Carefully constructed, manipulative, guilt-inducing narrative. He suggested data on COVID fatalities reported by coroners... ...seems set up only to inflate the death numbers for the propaganda machine. This has won him support from people involved with Voices for Freedom, a group with a well-documented record for fanning myths and disinformation. Ryan Hamilton's social media accounts follow many misinformation spreaders. His Facebook account's a member of the group for the New Nation Party, a radical fringe political party. This all contradicts the National Party he now represents. As leader, Christopher Luxon has described vaccine mandates as justified as a temporary measure. In February 2022, Mr Luxon advocated a gradual phasing out of the mandates, but he said it had made sense to separate vaccinated and unvaccinated people when it had a big effect on transmission. Ryan Hamilton made it clear in a series of social media comments that he did not agree. He commented... Well said. ...to one which called on Christopher Luxon to explain why he hadn't fought against... Illegal mandates. Days before mandates for teachers and health workers took effect, he said a post opposing them represented how he was feeling. In another, he criticised National for... Sitting on their hands. ...in response to the protests at Parliament. So how did someone with strongly held views, clearly at odds with National Party policy, end up as a candidate for that party? And would people in the habit of giving their party and candidate vote to the same team expect a local candidate to seemingly oppose the party's view? My colleague Anusha Bradley gave Ryan Hamilton a call. 
Hi, you've reached Ryan Hamilton. Sorry you've missed me. Please feel free to leave a voicemail or just text me and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Oh, kia ora, Mr Hamilton. It's Anusha Bradley here. I'm a journalist from RNZ. I just wanted to have a chat to you. Um, my number is... So I gave Mr Hamilton a ring, but he didn't pick up, so I left him a message. About 15 minutes later, he sent a text to me saying he was quite busy and he asked about the nature of my query. I replied saying I've got questions about his previous opposition to fluoridation of water and vaccine mandates, and I asked if we could arrange a time to talk that afternoon or even the next morning. Um, there was no reply. A few hours later, I did get a call from a National Party spin doctor asking why I was wanting to talk to Mr Hamilton and I explained the situation, I explained that he had been opposed to fluoridation of water for more than two decades and I cited some examples of what I'd seen posted on social media, including a post from Facebook about from about 2013 in which he had said poverty is redundant, a redundant reason to fluoridate water because, quote, most lower socioeconomics fill their tap water with raro. And I explained we wanted to speak to Mr. Hamilton because his comments are at odds with the National Party's views on fluoridation. And that's what's quite likely that he could be the MP for Hamilton East. It was really important that voters know what his position on the issue is now. I also explained we had questions about his opposition to vaccine mandates and his links to groups like that spread of mis- misinformation, including Voices for Freedom. Unfortunately, the National Party has ignored RNZ's request for an interview with Mr Hamilton about these issues. Instead, it sent us an unsolicited statement referring to that Raro comment I just mentioned. And in that statement, Mr Hamilton says he made that Facebook comment a decade ago and it was a rash comment and I apologise. He says, I've opposed fluoridation in the past, but now fully back National's plan. He says he's vaccinated against COVID-19, but as a Hamilton City Councillor, he opposed mandates for entry to council facilities because he didn't support that particular restriction. Now, I guess after 22 years of opposing fluoridation in water, RNZ would love to know why and when Mr Hamilton changed his views and about his links to groups that spread misinformation, but we haven't been given that opportunity to speak to him. So I suppose that's the question, isn't it? That that without the transparency of knowing how and why he's changed his mind, it's hard to reconcile. Absolutely. We need to know, the public needs to know when he changed his mind about these issues and why. Um, Was it because he suddenly became a National Party candidate or was there some other reason? Um, I think that he needs to explain that to the voting public. Also, is it clear whether the National Party knew about any of this ahead of time? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Certainly when I was having a chat to the National Party's PR team, they did not know about that RARO comment and I had to forward the proof of that comment to them. But yeah, it would be interesting to know because surely these candidates are vetted quite well and you would assume that the National Party knows everything about Mr Hamilton. Why does any of this matter? If Ryan Hamilton's been open about his views on fluoride and vaccine mandates and National still decided to pick him, then that's their choice, right? It is. But there's a deeper issue here. Ryan Hamilton has, for the most part, eschewed misinformation and extreme rhetoric in his own public statements. But he's done nothing to discourage it and he's arguably legitimised it. At a raucous meeting of Hamilton's Residents and Ratepayers Association in June, he watched as nonsensical and wild conspiratorial claims swirled. The meeting was supposed to be about transport issues, 
But when he rose to speak, Ryan Hamilton was eager to remind the crowd that he was the only councillor to stand up against council's imposed mandates. That was really fantastic. Um, Ryan, have you got a couple of months to spare? Where is he? <laughs> Would you like to comment on anything, Ryan? Um, do you want to bring everyone here right at the back? Uh, Ryan Hamilton, City Councillor. Um, look, I sympathise with a lot of what he's what has been said tonight in regarding traffic. Um, I'll keep my agreement fairly narrow as, as a City Councillor. Um, I was the only councillor to stand up against council's imposed mandates during the COVID period at the end of 2021. He later said he'd mentioned this because he thought it was appropriate in terms of trying to build rapport. That's a quote. Who, who do you work for, please? Yeah. I work for you. Thank you. The effect at best was to wave through the climate denialism and extreme political rhetoric that preceded his comments. At worst, it seemed like an appeal to kindred spirits. It's difficult to imagine Christopher Luxon... Chris Bishop or Shane Retty doing something similar this election campaign. And it's impossible to imagine the last one, in 2020. Even, say, for a party like New Zealand First. Here's Charlie Mitchell again. One thing I like to think about um, sometimes regarding this is during the last election, probably around this time actually, um, Winston Peters, who was then the Deputy Prime Minister, there was no COVID in the country, it was this sort of like triumphant period where it seemed like we'd battered away the virus he was giving a speech to a meeting um, and somebody asked a question and, and basically the question implied that the virus behind the pandemic didn't exist sit down sit down sit down we've got uh someone obviously got an education in america um and and winston peters gave this very uh fiery response where he was like listing off the the number of deaths 220,000 people have died in the United States the rising cases in the world there are 8 million cases today uh, we've got 79,000 cases probably today in India then he finishes it by saying and here's somebody who gets up and says the earth is flat sorry sunshine wrong place yes sir and that kind of went viral it was a sort of like very much um batting away this notion that there was something sinister about the pandemic that it was planned and when you look at it now three years later in the same point of the election campaign the same sort of spirit that that person represented they are now within New Zealand first like it's not a one-to-one match necessarily but this kind of notion that there is an official narrative quote marks that is not to be believed around the pandemic that is very much the constituency of New Zealand First now. And it's this kind of jarring, it's like a complete 180. Um, and I think that just shows how everything has gone in the last three years. It's it's completely turned upside down in some ways, and it's quite disorienting. When I asked Jenny Marcroft about the impact of people with conspiratorial views within New Zealand First, she talks about the news media. Well, 
when you talk about disinformation, uh, you know, we could look at the media and say, why are, why are so many people distrusting of the media? You know, 60% in a recent survey said New Zealanders no longer trust the media. 70% no longer see the media, particularly news media, as relevant. So at what point do we say, actually, we don't believe and trust our media anymore? They are, you know, not telling us the truth either. So we've come to a point, I feel, where, you know, trust and misinformation, we're kind of swimming in it. Um, and my, you know, one of the things that I'm really passionate about coming from a media background is what can we do to ensure that institution, the fourth estate, uh, maintains uh, the ability to hold power to account for the people and not crumble as we're seeing it currently. Um, to me, it's to me that's the big question and that's the issue I'm focused on is that we don't have the strength of a, a vibrant fourth estate, then, you know, what happens to our democracy? One of the most publicised stories about the news media, misinformation and trust from the recent past involves my own employer. RNZ itself was embroiled in a disinformation scandal just before the first episodes of Undercurrent dropped – it was discovered a digital journalist had been altering and adding to copy by reputable outlets, including Reuters. Some of it was pro-Russian, described by RNZ Chief Executive and Editor-in-Chief Paul Thompson as... Pro-Kremlin garbage. ...about the war in Ukraine, amongst other things. Propaganda. Disinformation. Fake news. A review was commissioned and an audit done of the journalist's work which eventually discovered 49 articles which RNZ deemed to be inappropriately edited. The day the scandal broke, Paul agreed he'd sit down with me to discuss the review after the panel reported back. He made good on the promise in August. He didn't know the questions ahead of time right. and was treated can... as any other interviewee would be. On. I can't hear myself. That's always a good start. I can hear myself. Can I hear myself yet? Oh, I can hear myself now. Hello. Thank you. Um... OK, if we start recording from here, uh, first of all, what's your name and what do you do? Uh, I'm Paul Thompson. I'm the Chief Executive and the Editor-in-Chief of RNZ. He's my Editor-in-Chief, but hasn't vetted or had input into this episode, aside from this interview. So how does RNZ rebuild trust? Um, partly it's by measuring it, which we're doing at the moment in the field, and we report back through our annual research round and we've added in some more questions around trust and the drivers of trust because when we were um, you know when we became aware of this editing issue and it became such a public flashpoint we knew we needed to ask that question so the first question is to kind of first thing is to sort of figure out what if any change has been there and we'll we'll um, know that soon apart from that um, a couple of things is firstly not to be complacent or cavalier about the report or its findings or the recommendation, to actually really take them seriously. The second part of it is not to get unnerved or spooked by what happened because we have to keep confidence in what we do. Um, we are the most trusted media organisation in New Zealand um, and our work is of high quality 
and this was quite a confined issue in terms of those editorial errors. So keeping it in perspective but taking it seriously. But also, just as I've said before, we can't kind of shrink into our shells and 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 be unnerved by it. We've got to build on this because it's been really confronting and painful. We've got to get something good out of it, which is to lift our standards. Did you harm public trust with your comments that you made in the immediate aftermath? Look, um, the story was raging at the moment I made those comments. That didn't create the narrative around um, misinformation in the story uh, in favour of Russia. They were strong comments and it was what I felt I needed to say to convey the importance and the seriousness of the issue. Um, The panel felt the language was too strong, but on the essential point that the editing was inappropriate, it affected the balance of stories and it introduced false information. We were on the same page. So where's the accountability? The accountability is in getting, uh, leading the organisation through the through the challenge. I mean, that's been really, really difficult in itself. I think being transparent and up for both doing the audit and the independent review, making sure it was robust, fronting on the findings, doing this interview, um, I think that's where the accountability sits. Um, and none of it's particularly easy, but it, that's the right thing for me to do. Did anyone offer their resignation? Uh, no one offered the resignation, no. No, I think people were um, really, really felt quite vulnerable and upset and there was a lot of emotion, as you'd expect. But um, I thought it was important to actually figure out what had happened and deal with it, and that's where my focus was. If there had been feelings, though, um, like this in another part of the public service, um, rightly RNZ would be asking questions about accountability. There are people who have been here from the get-go with digital and have been part of the failings and are continuing to work here. Well, I've got... There's no accountability there? Uh, Look, the whole issue and the problem and what happened is being um, thoroughly examined and and discussed, which is really important. So it's not like there's anything there Mm. which hasn't been been flushed out. But are Um, they good enough? uh, Yes, I have full confidence in them. And also... um, Mistakes happen in journalism all the time and we do all work together to support each other to commission properly, assign stories properly, edit and vet copy and things. We do an amazing job of picking up on issues and that's the job of journalism and things sometimes do go wrong and um, that doesn't mean that people don't have a, a future in terms of being part of solutions and learning from it. So we all have to kind of keep an open mind on that. But I have... Um, full confidence that we will build a much stronger um, editorial operation from this. And we were pretty strong beforehand. Our vast majority of our work, um, highly robust and trusted. This particular area was in a particular area involving one staff member and 49 stories. So treating it seriously, but also keeping that wider context is important and actually being really resolute on making the improvements we need to do, need to make. At the beginning of that clip, you hear us talking about trust and Paul Thompson mentions the research that's being done. Well, since we did that interview, it's reported back and there's mixed news. The Kantar RNZ Values Indices Survey of 2,000 people 
found 44% strongly agree that RNZ is an organisation you can trust. That ranks RNZ as still the most trusted media organisation in the country. But it's a worse result than in 2022, down four points from 48%. And while RNZ is still at the top, it's had a bigger drop in trust than the two next highest ranked, TVNZ and NewsHub. Where does this all leave us, with only weeks to go before polling day? Well, the campaign is like none before, and ever greater numbers of us are voting early. Director of the Disinformation Project, Kate Hanna, has a couple of things to consider. When we get to the voting period, which we need to remember is not a, not a single day anymore, you know, is a longer voting period, but we still have these archaic rules that are about the day of voting when all the signs have to come down and we're not allowed to tell anybody on social media how to vote or whatever. We saw, for example, last year with the Baby W court case that alternative media and social media disinformation producers didn't respect the automatic name suppression. What's going to happen during that longer voting period and on the specific day on the 14th with regards to the promotion of or the description of who you should vote for? Mm. Not from parties necessarily, but from politically aligned lobbying groups. But are people from the conspiracy community likely to turn out to vote? Those who are deeply inside disinformation communities, if we take, for example, their attitude towards the census as a proxy to attitudes towards the election, there was a lot of talk about not participating. And we know that that did result in quite a high level of refusal of not participating. So definitely I think we will see some people not participate in the electoral process. Whether that will be any more than the numbers that usually do not participate in the electoral process is difficult to know. The disinformation community tries to have a buck both ways on this because you refute the legality and the democratic process of an election, but you also kind of tell people to vote because you want to see if it works. And, you know, there's lots of conversations about how we're going to track our votes and go along and demand to see, you know, my vote going through, you know, completely getting rid of the idea of the secret ballot. And then they can celebrate if they win, but they can also say it was stolen if they don't. Voices for Freedom's also been vocal online recently about encouraging its followers in applying for roles with the Electoral Commission. It's understood some have got at least to the background check stage to be scrutineers. If conspiracy theorists do get through the vetting process and work at the election, that sets the scene for the election day to have quite a different vibe. Several smaller parties are planning marches and rallies in the run-up to election day, as are lobby groups like Julian Batchelor's Stop Co-Governance Tour. Whatever happens, we'll be watching. Undercurrent is an RNZ series created and presented by me, Susie Ferguson. It was reported and written by Susie Ferguson and John Hartfelt, with additional reporting by Anusha Bradley and Kirsty Johnston. It features the voice of Colin Peacock, it was engineered and mixed by William Saunders. This episode was edited by John Hartfelt and Megan Whelan. 
For more information and resources, visit our website rnz.co.nz slash undercurrent.